Now we come to chapter 8. And here we have another one of the visions, and this vision takes in the entire eighth chapter, and it's a vision of a basket of summer fruit. This is the fourth vision, and it's very important to get the meaning of this, and it will help us in the interpretation of passages that come later on, especially of things that our Lord said. I'm reading verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God shown unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, there's a great deal that can be said about a basket of summer fruit. I love fruit. To me, all fruits are delicious. I enjoy the fruits of California and of Florida, the citrus. I enjoy the fruits of Northern California and Oregon and Washington and across the country. And wherever I am, I love the fruit. There's nothing as attractive as a basket of summer fruit. But that basket of summer fruit has a message. First of all, it represents a harvest. It represents that the tree is no longer producing. My apricot tree this past year had some lovely apricots upon it. But there's no use going out there and looking now. The limbs are bare, and there's no fruit on it at all. The harvest is past. It's over. And there'll not be any there until next year, or at least until later on this year. And the basket of summer fruit speaks of that which is delightful and delicious, but it also speaks of the end of the harvest. And it also speaks of the fact that it can spoil in a hurry. When we were in World War II, a missionary from South America wrote us from back east that she was coming to the West Coast, and since she was a personal friend, she would be staying with us. She'd arrive on a certain day. Well, when she got to Chicago, that was the time you had difficulty getting reservations on the train, she found out she couldn't get on the train that she wanted to get on. The military had priority, and all reservations were picked up, and she was in the day coach, and there was no room for her at all. So she sent us a telegram she wouldn't be coming on the day, and it would probably be a week later before she'd be able to come. Well, we had prepared the guest room for her fact of the matter, I had gone out and picked some lovely apricots off of my tree, and I'd put a basket of apricots in her room. But when we got the telegram, we just closed the room. We forgot all about the basket of apricots. And then when the time came for her to come, we opened up the room. And I want to tell you, the odor was not very pleasant. In fact, it took weeks to get the odor out of that room because rotten apricots are not very good, by the way. And a message is in a basket of summer fruit. What a dramatic and figurative illustration this is going to be. Now we're not through with it. Verse 2, And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. 
Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. Now, you see, God again and again in these visions would change his mind. He wouldn't destroy him. He said, since Amos has prayed, and there must have been the godly remnant that always stood for God, they prayed, and God would not bring the judgment. But now, the basket of summer fruit says, the jig is up. You come to the end of the line. Now, the judgment will come. And harvest always speaks of that. Now, I have always felt that the passage that our Lord gave has been greatly misunderstood. He said, you remember, the harvest is great, the laborers are few. And a great many people interpret that to mean today that we are to go out and harvest. I don't understand the Word of God like that at all. May I say to you that today, harvest speaks of the end of a period, some period, and it speaks of an end of a dispensation. Now, the dispensation of law was coming to an end. Christ was going to the cross. Now, he said, I need harvesters to go out today, and we're harvesting at the end of the age. But after he died on the cross, why, it's a different story. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Go ye into all the world and preach this gospel. Go into all the world and sow the seed. My business is just sowing seed. It's the Lord's business to do the converting. And we believe that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and make a son of God when a man of God will use it. And that's all we're doing is just sowing seed. We're not harvesting. And a harvest speaks of judgment, speaks of an end of an age. Our business today is sowing seed. And very candidly, I wish I could get us all back doing the thing God's called us to do today. And the church is to sow seed, which is the Word of God in the world today. Now, I've spent a little time with that because that's important to see, and I'll move rather hurriedly. He goes on to say here, "...and the songs of the temple shall be wailings in that day." In other words, a place to praise God and rejoice, become a place of wailing now. Saith the Lord God, there shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. In other words, they will be slain everywhere. The slain will be everywhere. And now verse 4, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. I don't want to go into this again, but I merely remind you of how many times Amos has talked about the poor. And I have emphasized it, maybe overemphasized it. But I happen to be on that side today. I'm not on the young side, but I sure have been on the poor side. And I remember my dad wearing overalls. He was a workman. And I have seen him on Saturday when he drew his paycheck. We bought groceries on credit. He went and paid the grocery. He paid the doctor. He paid the rent. And when all that was taken care of, I remember one Saturday he reached in his pocket because he always gave my sister and me a nickel, and he had only one nickel there. And he told me to go up to the store in the little town and to get 
a sack of candy, and I got gumdrops, and you could sure get a big sack in those days. And my sister and I divided those gumdrops. He died when I was 14, and I had to go to work. I had to get a permit for me to work, and I worked for two years. And finally, when I was 17, some folk, after I was converted and felt called to the ministry, they took an interest in me and helped me get through school. May I say to you, my friends, I'm for the poverty program, but not the one they're running today and have been for years. That puts money in the pockets of those that already have it. I'm for a poverty program that really is going to help the poor get on their feet and enable them to work. In that day, you see, they made the poor of the land to fail. That is, they were brought down to such a low poverty level they could never escape from it. And that is the condition, of course, of many in our land today. And so far, there's not been a program that has worked. And I'll tell you why it will never work until the right kind of people are running it. And that means Christian people. And that is the only way it's ever worked as far as this world is concerned. These people had turned from God, and the poor always suffer in a godless nation. That's been the story, and I don't think that can be successfully contradicted. Now, verse 5, saying, When will the new moon be gone? that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit. Even when they went through the rituals that God had given them, and they went through them. If you had gone among those people in that day, and especially down in Jerusalem at the temple, well, you couldn't understand what the Lord was talking about. Why, he says, why, these people are going through the rituals. They're doing what they're commanded. Yes, but their heart was far from them. Even when they went to the temple to praise God, they were so greedy and covetousness had so possessed them like a disease that they would there sing the songs and at the same time think about business the next day and how they were going to cheat people. May I say to you, they not only carried their sin into the wheat, but they carried it even into the temple. What a picture that we have here. And again, he brings this up. Uh, this man knew what it was to be a poor man. And I want to say that maybe that's the reason I love this man Amos so much. He talks my language. He says the thing that I understand. He was poor. And some of us know what that means. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver. They even had to sell themselves into slavery. And that was permitted in that land, even under the Mosaic system. But I tell you, God protected his people even then. And the needy for a pair of shoes. That's how cheap they were. Yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. That means second. That means those things that were leftovers. I never have felt right about taking up old clothes to help the poor in the church. I've never felt like giving them the leftovers of anything. I had a man that was a dairyman down in Georgia when I had the little church there. And he told me, he says, well, I come right by the seminary. And that was during the summertime, and I was preaching in the little church out there. And he says, 
I generally have a quart of skim milk left over, and I'll leave it for you if you want it. And I told him even then when I could have used it, I said, no, thank you, sir. He would praise God that he was able to help the preacher by giving him a quart of skim milk. May I say to you how cheap and cheesy we can be with God in these matters. And that's exactly what these people were doing in that day. And my friend, God noted that. It was no accident that the Lord Jesus there that day, he sat and watched how the people gave in the temple. Somebody says, is that his business? You bet that's his business. That's his business today, friends. That's a strong meat that we're looking at here. It's very harsh language. But God's speaking, friends, in this book here. And I think he's speaking loud and clear in these days in which we're living. Now I'm reading verse 7. The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Two things that are here. The excellency of Jacob is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's sworn by the excellency of Jacob. What is that excellency? It's the Messiah that is coming. You could take no oath higher than that. And he says, surely I'll never forget any of their works. Well, we saw last time that he doesn't forget works at all, even of the believer. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we are to be judged by the things that have been done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. What a picture that is given to us here in that connection. Now, will you note, as we move on down, verse 8, "...shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth in it." Now, many commentators think this is an earthquake, and it could possibly be. I wouldn't want to rule that out. But I think it's the fact that God is coming down hard upon them in judgment that makes the land tremble. Even today, you can't go through that land. And this is especially true of the northern kingdom. That is, it's all one today, but in that day, it was the kingdom of Israel. You can't go around places like Samaria. It's rugged hill country around Gilgal, around Bethel. All of these places are in a frightful state. It looks as if at one time it was a very fruitful area and that there was a great deal of vegetation there, including a great many trees. But the land has been pretty much denuded today, and it shows the evidence of judgment upon it. God came down heavy on that land, and we're going to see at the end of the next chapter that the promise for the future includes the land with the people. That people and that land go together. You can't separate them at all. And that's a very important thing to always note in prophecy. Now, we're going to see that. Whether it be judgment or whether it be blessing, the blessing will come to the land as well as the people. And today, again, I would say that's another reason that I cannot accept that the prophecies 
of the Scripture being fulfilled in their present return. To begin with, they have returned physically to the land, but they have not returned spiritually to the Lord. And there's not the blessing upon that land. It hasn't changed. Now, it is true that they have worked, and they have worked hard. They have recovered a great deal of it from swamps, and they have gotten irrigation into the desert in many places. And when they do, it does blossom as the rose. But those places are few and far between, even in that small land today. So that you could not say that these great prophecies are being fulfilled today. The last return to the land has not taken place yet. To begin with, there are more today in New York City of Israel than there is in the entire land of Israel, the nation of Israel. And that ought to tell you something. When most of this country moves to London or to Paris or to Rome or to North Africa, then I will come to the conclusion that America's pretty much divided when we lose the population like that. Now, let me read on. Verse 8, "...shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth in it? And it shall rise up holy like the river, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the river of Egypt." And as you know that down there during the season of the flooding, the whole land there is flooded. And it not only brings water to the land, but it also brings a great deal of fertilizer as it comes down from the very heart of Africa itself. Now, he goes on here in verse 9, "...and it shall come to pass in that day." Now, here is Amos speaking of that day. And we have already come to the conclusion, at least I hope we have, having looked at so many of the prophets, that that day is a technical expression that refers to the specific day of the Lord. And generally, it refers to the Great Tribulation because it comes first, because the day begins at night as far as Israel was concerned and as the Bible is concerned. It's the evening and morning of the first day. And I don't know whether you'd say it that way or not. I never would have. I would have said the morning and the evening of the first day. But the day of the Lord begins in darkness, and Amos has made that clear. And I think that here he moves on to speak of a judgment that is coming in the future. Now, if you'll notice what he says here, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Now, that will be the future judgment, you see. Now, he says here, and I think he's returning back to what he's going to do at that particular time which he did, by the way. He did not do the other, that is for sure. Now, verse 10, "...and I will turn your feasts into mourning." Now, God gave to Israel, the nation, seven feast days. And they were to come before him, the males, at three of those great feasts. And they were to always come rejoicing. It was a time of praise thanksgiving, and glorifying God. Well, God says they've been celebrating the feast, but they haven't been praising him. Now he's turning their feasts into mourning, the very opposite of what he intended them to be. And all your songs into lamentation. 
Now, isn't it interesting today, and I'm no music critic, and I don't want to get into that field, but what is popular music today? Now, when I came along as a young fella, in my day it was the blues, and then it was jazz, and then it was the rock and roll, and today it's the hard rock. Now, I ask you something as you listen to the music. Do you hear anything joyful about it? Oh, it has a beat to it, and you can hop up and down like a yo-yo. And I have a notion that that type of joy is about the type of joy that a kid would get playing with a yo-yo. It doesn't require very much thinking, and it is something that is just worked up of the flesh. And it's that type of music that the world has always produced. It's mourning. It's tragic. I had the privilege of being in Vienna and going to the opera there. I really was coming up in the world. I had never done that before. If you want to know the truth, it's the first opera I'd ever heard. And I hate to confess it, I enjoyed it. But you know what it was? It was a tragic thing. The boy didn't get the girl. My, that was tragic, you see. And the songs were lamentations and wailings. Now, that is what the world produces today. That is the music. And here, God says, I'll turn all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Now, that is the judgment that was coming upon them presently, and it did in that day, and this was literally fulfilled. Now, he says, "...behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water." but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, here is a most unusual famine. God had given them his word, and they had rejected it. They had despised it. They had turned aside. Now, he says, the day is coming when you're not going to hear it. In other words, the day is coming when no longer will they hear the word of God. Now, I hear a great many people today mourn and bemoan the fact that so many of the great churches of this country, great downtown churches, have turned from the Word of God. Most of them have had to close shop. They're just barely operating, many of them operating in the red. No longer is that Word of God being given out in real Bible teaching. Now, There's a lot of things called Bible teaching that actually is not that at all. At least, in my judgment, it's not that. So, those churches, many of them have closed and they've lost their influence. Those that have even stayed open, they've lost their influence, lost their drawing power. Now, what is happening is this. God says to any church or any nation, if I've given you the Word of God, and you don't hear it, then I'll withdraw it. And that's what he's done. And you can deplore the fact all you want to about some of these churches today that have gone modern. They no longer hear the Word of God. Well, what did they do with it when they heard it? 
many of them rejected it and turned their back upon it. And there came a famine of the Word of God. As a result, very little of the Word of God actually is getting out in this land today where there is a Gideon Bible in every room in every hotel and motel of the country. Nearly everyone has a Bible, but who's studying it? Who's believing it? Who's reading it today? That's the important thing. And I think that we're beginning to see the famine of the Word of God in this land. Now, will you notice, they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, they shall run to and fro to seek the Word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. And today, we get any number of letters here from different areas of this country. They say, we've had no Bible teaching in our town or our community for years. Bible teaching is something brand new to a great many people. Why? The famine's already set in, friends, in this land of ours. And we believe that although we appeal to a minority of a minority, that is, We have to appeal to Christians, but how many Christians today really want to study the Word of God? So we appeal to a minority of a minority. But today, we feel like the most important thing we can do, in fact, it's the only thing that we can do, is to give out the Word. Now, will you listen? Verse 13, "...in that day..." Now, here we are back at that day, "...shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst..." Now, Joel has already spoken of that, that there would be a day coming when it would be like that. Isaiah spoke of it, that even the young man would faint. And Amos makes it clear that it's for the Word of God. Verse 14, "...they that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth." Now, many took an oath by Samaria. And that was a common oriental practice. I understand today that in that land that a man takes an oath by even a trip to Mecca or takes an oath by one of these mosques. It's a custom in that day. Then he says, "...the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again." These were great centers of idolatry at this particular time. Now we come to the last chapter, and it says here, verse 1 of chapter 9, "...I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away." and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Now, this is the coming of the Assyrian to destroy the northern kingdom and to take what was left into captivity. Now, the altar that he's talking about here and the temple is not the one in Jerusalem. It was the one that was in Bethel and the one that was in Samaria, where the golden calf was. I've seen the ruins of the temple in Samaria that was there. And the temple would be brought down so suddenly that many of the people who went in there to seek refuge would be caught, and they would be trapped in there 
and be killed in the temple because of the fact that they sought refuge there. Now, this is the judgment that was coming upon them. Now, up to this point, Amos has dealt with nothing in the world but judgment. Judgment that was coming soon upon them. Judgment that's out yonder in the future that he identifies as the day of the Lord. And we believe that that's what the Lord Jesus meant and spoke of the same thing, and he called it the great tribulation period that was coming upon this earth. Now, in this last chapter, we're going to see that for the first time he looks into the future and gives the glorious prospect of the future. So in that very dark day, Amos is no pessimist. He looks way down into the future, and he sees coming a glorious day for this earth. I think that any child of God today ought to be an optimist. None of us ought to be a pessimist. No reason for it. Now, we have here a very significant and a very strong statement made. You find it made several times in the prophets. I'm going to read it. Verse 2 now, chapter 9. Though they dig into our translation, says hell, but it should be Sheol. That's the place of the dead or the grave. It can be either. There shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there will I bring them down. Now, this is a very frightful statement. Fact of the matter is, there is the terror of the wicked. And there are two things that cause the terror of the wicked to give any thought to this whatsoever. Most of them today have tried to blot it out of their minds. They've been brainwashed in this liberal society in which we live today. But the two things that bring terror to the heart of the wicked are the omnipresence of God and the immutability of God. Now, here we have the omnipresence of God. That is, God is present everywhere. You couldn't even go into death and get away from him. And the immutability of God is that God never changes, never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, these two great truths are a great comfort to God's children, but they are terror to the wicked. Now, this is what I mean. The omnipresence of God to the child of God. The Lord Jesus said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Wonderful, is it not? Him that cometh to me, he says, he'll never, no wise will he reject you. He receives you, and he receives you for eternity. No one can take us out of his hand. And if you're in his hand, you're very close to him, you see. And he uses the other figure of the vine and the branches. Well, I tell you, you can't get any closer to a vine than the branch. The branch is right close to the vine. So that the omnipresence of God is a comfort for the child of God, but for the wicked. The omnipresence of God is a terror. A great many people today commit suicide. They want to get rid of it all. They want to rub out life. One very prominent man here in Southern California, committed suicide, and his note was, I want to end it all and get rid 
of this life. Well, he got rid of his problems here, and he got rid of a great many things here that were really annoying him. He was in deep trouble. But he didn't get rid of God. You see, death didn't separate him from God. God is there. And the psalmist, you remember David said, though I make my bed in hell, why, God's there. And that is in death. And though I go into heaven, I can't get away from him. You can't run away from God. Francis Thompson years ago wrote a poem. Actually, he didn't intend to be irreverent, and it's not irreverent. It's called the hound of heaven. He's right on your track. I don't care who you are. He's right on your track. And you can't get rid of him at all. And then, of course, the immutability of God. If God said back yonder in the Old Testament, he's going to judge sin, he didn't read anything in the Los Angeles Times today, and he could read a whole lot of liberalism there, and he didn't learn anything by listening to the Senate or the president or the college professors and presidents or the scientists. God didn't learn anything from them. He hasn't changed his mind. God never changed. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and forever. And that's wonderful for the child of God, as we said some time ago when we saw that passage in Hebrews, how wonderful it was that the same one who walked the Sea of Galilee and was so gracious, so wonderful, he's still the same today. And that's a comfort for the child of God. Now, let's move on here because we've got a great deal to cover. And he says, though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel. Now, Mahaifa's on Carmel today. And along the side there of that mountain, and the city's built along the side, I've been along there quite a few times, and there are caves there. And apparently, they would try to hide themselves there. He says, I will search and take them out from there. And though they be hidden from my sight in the bottom of the sea, there will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. You may be able to get in a submarine, go to the bottom of the ocean. God's there, friend. You can't get away from him. Verse 4, And though they go into captivity before the enemies, there will I command the sword, it shall slay them, and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So the wicked today do well to fear God and to fear the future. And a man that commits suicide thinking he's getting rid of his troubles, he's just moving into trouble. It's like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. That almost literally. Verse 5, And the Lord God of hosts is he who toucheth the land, and it shall melt. And all that dwell in it shall mourn. It shall rise up holy like a river, shall be drowned as by the river of Egypt. And I don't think you can go through that land without being conscious of the fact that the land that was the land of milk and honey is today, even with all of the irrigation, all that's being done, today it's not a land of milk and honey. It's far from it. A judgment has come upon it. I talked to a very fine Jewish couple. I met them in the elevator. They could tell I was a Gentile, I guess. And we began to talk, and they had come out to buy an apartment that they might spend. In fact, they thought they might retire there permanently, but at least part of the year. And he said very candidly, though we bought the apartment, we want to help our people in this land, we never expect to use it. 
because he says, I don't think that this is the land that the Bible says that it is. And it's not. But, of course, he just didn't read about the judgments of Amos on that land. Now, will you notice, verse 6, "...it is he who buildeth his chambers in the heavens, and hath found his troop in the earth. He who calleth for the waters of the sea, poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name." Now, who's going to do this? Well, I'll tell you who's going to do all of this. It's the Creator, the omnipotent God now that we're talking about. He's not only the omnipresent God, but he is the omnipotent God. And not only that, but when you move down through here, you get the impression that what he's trying to say, that everything that's in nature obeys God. The only thing in the creation of God that does not obey him is little man down here. Imagine a little man. There is the sun out yonder in the sky. There's the moon. There are all of these tremendous galaxies and all of the quasars. Every one of them is obeying God. Great big things. Obeying him. He's made certain laws. They really follow it. But little man, no, little man, he's in rebellion against God. Now, here is one of the strangest statements in the Bible, and it's quite wonderful. Verse 7, "...are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel?" God wanted to let them know how much he loved them, and he said, "...I love you like I love the Ethiopians." And I ran a series of messages years ago when Mussolini moved in to Ethiopia. You remember, took over the country for a while. And at that time, I said, it couldn't be permanent. And I made a study of the prophecies that concern Ethiopia. It's quite interesting, and I can't go into that, but it's amazing the place that Ethiopia has in the program of God for the future, a nation that I guess most of us think very unimportant. But God says they're very important to him, by the way. Now he says, "...have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtar, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom." That's Israel. "...and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth." That is, as a nation. "...except," listen to this, "...that I will not Utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. Now, God says, the nation is through, but not the people. God says, I will not destroy them. Verse 9, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Now, you want to know where the lost tribe is? Get your telephone book. Look up the names. Cohen, Goldberg. I have received a letter here from a Jewish Christian friend of mine back in Chicago named Goldberg, and he's a wonderful Christian. May I say you want to know where the ten tribes are today? They are scattered throughout the world, and they're not lost as far as God is concerned. Will you notice, I will scatter them, sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least kernel fall upon the earth. God says, I won't lose a one of them. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sower. 
Now, how about the sinners? Well, they're going to die. He will judge the individuals that won't turn to him. You have the same analogy in the church today. Not all church members are saved. I hope you agree to that. If you'd been pastor as long as I have, you'd know that not all church members are saved. But they're church members. Paul says not all Israel is Israel. Not all the individuals are. Now, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the evil shall not overtake nor meet us. Now we come to the wonderful part of this book, that is, the optimistic part. Listen to this now. In that day. Now we are moving past the time of judgment, the great tribulation. Listen to this. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that's fallen. And if you want to follow through on this, go listen to James in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. He quotes this. And he says that God today is calling out a people from among the Gentiles to his name. But he says then afterward he will raise up the tabernacle of David, and then all the Gentiles will seek the Lord. In other words, he's speaking of the kingdom, the greatest day that's yet in the future. He says, that is fallen, and I'll close up the breaches of it, and I will raise up the ruins and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations which are called by my name, saith the Lord, who doeth this. And there'll be many nations that are going to enter the millennium. Verse 13, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. Now, I've said before, and here's the proof of it that when the people are being blessed, the land is blessed. And when the land is being blessed, the people are being blessed. That land and that people belong together, and you couldn't untie them. God makes it very clear that when he puts them back in the land, that that land will again be the land of milk and honey. And it just doesn't happen to be that right now. So I take it the present return. They've returned to the land, but they have not returned to God. Now, he says, "...and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities." Now, God's going to restore them to the land, but not as a separate nation from the nation of Judah. They are together, and I think they're mixed all over the world today. This idea that Great Britain and the United States are the ten lost tribes, you'd contradict the Word of God. God says, I've sifted them among all nations. Now, has he or hasn't he? Now, if it's just England and the United States, the ten tribes, then believe me, they're not sifted all over the world. We're very much stay-at-home folk. And we've got a few million people in this land of ours. So is Great Britain. They are not the ten lost tribes. The ten lost tribes have been sifted, but they're going to be returned. I'll bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. They shall build the waste cities, they inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God." Now, these are the things that God says that he's going to do 
for his people. He's going to restore the Davidic dynasty. And who do you think will be the king? Why, son of David, by the name of Jesus, born down in Bethlehem of the house and lineage of David. And he's to rule. And you will see Israel take her place among the nations of the world, no longer going to the United Nations with her hat in her hand, and no longer shutting out Arabs either, by the way. But a nation that's going to be blessed of God and occupy a place among the nations of the world. There will be a conversion of the nations of the world, friends. The greatest time of salvation has already taken place before the church got here. Look at the city of Nineveh. When Jonah went there, we'll be there shortly. And the greatest day, though, for the history of this world is yet in the future, after the church leaves. Now you have also the land is to be blessed when God puts them back there, and the curse of judgment is upon them today, and they're going to rebuild their cities, and they're going to be there permanently. That's the belief right now of several expositors of the Word that are outstanding, that the nation Israel may be put out of that land again before the end time. That's something for you to turn over in your thinking, by the way, today. And this brings us to the end of the book of Amos. I reluctantly leave it, but next time we'll be in Second Peter. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.